how do we move more into the direction of that world of honoring the beauty and the validity and the integrity of every individual on this planet who's here for a purpose and every life is important whether we're doing a warrior pose or um, any other pose in yoga, somehow we're connecting to our own power, you know, and the power therefore of others uh, because we radiate a power and we can ignite passion and power in other people. And that's the power of taking our yoga off the yoga mat out into the world. Welcome to A Curious Yogi Podcast. I'm your host, Bobby, here to illuminate your practice as we discover what it means to walk the yogi's path. Together with wise friends and awakening teachers, we uncover the answers to our greatest questions. I'm so delighted you're here. Now let's get curious. Welcome back to the show, Curious Yogis. This week's episode is an important one as I share in deep conversation with Ned Roche, a certified yoga teacher based out of Portland and a graduate of the Center for Mind-Body Medicine's Healing the Wounds of War program. Ned traveled to Gaza two months after the 2014 war on Gaza to facilitate stress reduction and yoga workshops in impoverished refugee camps, under-resourced schools, overwhelmed Red Crescent Society clinics, and inundated mental health centers. His recollections of those experiences are available in his chapter in the book, Stories of Personal Transformation, Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, which I would highly recommend getting a copy of. Ned returned to Gaza again in 2020 and had hoped to go back in October of this year to lead a yoga teacher training program. In this conversation, Ned shares with us his spiritual story and what it means for him to have been raised in an observant Jewish family that strongly identified with Zionism, as well as being named after a great uncle killed in the Holocaust. He grew up with a profound connection to Israel where he worked on a kibbutz and studied at the Hebrew University. However, the real power in Ned's talk today is one we can all learn from, and that was and is how his deep personal commitment to people's liberation struggles eventually transformed the way he viewed the Palestine issue. Ned feels that the most Jewish thing he can do is actively support the Palestinian struggle for freedom and justice. Today we touch on the facts of the current situation of Israel and historical Palestine and Ned really helps me understand the importance of learning the historical context as a precursor to any action or inaction in a deeply political time. We get into the powerful human impact that Ned has witnessed both during his time in Gaza and his advocacy work in the U.S., We speak about the discomfort of being a social justice yoga warrior and how important it is for each of us to find purpose and sustainable energy to feel connected to a journey that is meaningful and contributes to justice, peace, and the liberation of all people. Ned speaks with such pristine clarity that brings our awareness to the heart of conflict and simultaneously to the hope and possibility for peace. 
I invite you to really contemplate the topics Ned and I discuss for yourself and consider your own purpose and your part in that meaningful journey. Please let us know what you think by dropping your feedback, leaving a review, and please share this episode with your community. Feel free to ask anything. You know, I think a lot of people hold back. They think, oh my gosh, this is such a such a whatever issue, whatever adjective you want to throw in there. But I'm totally open and really interested, more interested in the hard questions than the easy ones. So don't hold back. Okay, yeah. I think it's that's a good thing for me to remember and like anybody listening to remember is that it's not really meant to be a comfortable conversation and that like it's an uncomfortable time. Like many of us are struggling, like you said, because it's like people have a conscience. We have this expectation that you're a good person in front of me, so you'll be taking action. And then we don't see people taking action or or this, I don't know. I just feel like it's a time that there is a lot of uncomfortableness, like for me anyways. Uncomfortableness often is an indication that something is stirring inside that needs to be looked at, addressed, dealt with, or something's about to happen, like in terms of one's journey. You know, maybe it's time to become the warrior that we really all have the capability of being, and especially those of us that practice yoga know what that notion of the warrior really is and how much it means and how important it is. And there are those moments in life when something is stirring inside and we need to pay attention at those moments, especially. Mm -hmm. I think that's even like a good place to start because I was just rereading one of your writings. I think it was the chapter that was in the book. Can you remind me of the title? Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism. Yes, your chapter in that book, how there was a point where you mentioned that you came to a point in your own deep contemplation where you felt that you had these conflicting beliefs and you had to kind of reconcile that discomfort kind of that we're talking about, maybe that many people, Jewish or not, are feeling right now and how your experience was of going through that process to come to the point where you are now in your spiritual beliefs and your advocacy work. Sure. Yeah. And I I appreciate you bringing up spiritual beliefs and advocacy in the same sentence, because I think they do go for many of us hand in hand. And it's my spiritual beliefs that, you know, fuel my advocacy. And it's my advocacy that I think in many ways ground my spiritual beliefs. And so there is a, a flow that goes back and forth that is um, that keeps it real and keeps it alive and, you know, provides the energy that I think is just so needed during times of crisis and, you know, and the anxiety that is caused by um, what's happening in our world today. So my own story is one that is not, that uncommon. I was born in a very, very traditional Jewish home. I'm named after a a victim of the Holocaust, um, who was a great uncle. And his story is actually a very interesting one. So it was a little over 100 years ago. He, who, from what I understand, and I haven't heard any, I never saw a medical record or anything like that. But he was born or he developed some kind of limp and he limped across Europe from Eastern Europe to the ocean to hop on some boat 
steerage and get to the U.S. And so uh, when he gets to the U.S., he's at the Statue of Liberty, and um, they saw this person who was walking with a limp, and they sent him back to Europe because they thought that this person might become a ward of the state, and who needs that? And he might be, you know, more expensive than he's worth. And so they sent him back. And the family that stayed here in this country that didn't go back with him corresponded with him um, for a couple of decades. And then during the Holocaust, never heard from him again. So it's pretty obvious that, you know, he was a victim of uh, the Nazi genocide. So I'm named after that great uncle. And I carry that with me, you know. And then also part of that name is his name was Noah. Um, and I was supposed to be Noah. And shortly before I was born, the Ku Klux Klan burned a cross not too far from where we were growing up. Um, and my parents, who themselves were first generation Americans, thought, oh, my gosh, um, you know, we can't name a kid Noah in this environment. So they kept the N from Noah and looked for the most American and, you know, in their view, sounding name they could come up with. And I became Ned. But I'm Ned and deep down inside I'm Noah. I, you know, it it, it feels to me like I have um, a passion for justice that, you know, I was born with through that story and through that naming and so on. But I grew up in a very small town and, it, you know, my parents were not political at all. And I played baseball and football and basketball. And that was my life as a kid. Um, and, you know, it was, it, that was wonderful. And then I went off to college and I started college in 1968 um, when, you know, college campuses were just rocking with protests and demonstrations against the atrocities that our government was committing in Southeast Asia. And I actually started um, as a member of ROTC, which is, you know, sort of Reserve Officer Training Corps, which is part of the Army, because um, I didn't know any better. And I said to the, uh, advise, you know, the advisor or guidance counselor who I was making my schedule up with, I said, what's ROTC? And, you know, he had a choice of gym or ROTC. And she said, oh, ROTC is really fun. You put on uniforms and you march in parades and things. I said, that sounds good to me. Well, you know, within a couple of weeks, um, I took a political science course and I started, you know, thinking a little bit more about politics and how our world works and doesn't work. And the notion that I would be part of the military um, and, you know, part of supporting the U.S. war in or on Vietnam was something I found pretty abhorrent. So I immediately dropped out of ROTC. I got all A's that first semester and a D in ROTC. Um, and, you know, from then on, it was pretty clear to me that I needed to stand for justice and I wasn't going to stand for military interventions and those kinds of things. On every issue, that was a very easy sell for me. It, you know, it, it was pretty clear that when people were fighting for freedom or fighting for justice, that that was the side I wanted to be on, not on the side of the oppressor. But when it came to Palestine and Israel, it was a different story because, because of my upbringing, where I was brought up in a very traditional home and traditional Jewish home. And, and to us, 
growing up, there really wasn't a differentiation between, on the one hand, Judaism from Zionism or Jewish tradition from Israel, that they were sort of from the same, they were woven from the same fabric. So we had a strong feeling most of the time that if someone criticized Israel, they perhaps were anti-Semitic, or why else would they criticize Israel? Because we believe that Israel was created as the national liberation project of the Jewish people. We didn't understand, or I didn't understand at that time, um, that that national liberation project was at the expense of the indigenous people that lived in Palestine. That 750,000 Palestinians were driven off their land in 1948 so that this Jewish state could come into existence. And when I started to unpack that, um, I became very confused, actually, because everything I'd been raised with, which was a part of my essence, that, you know, I was proud of being Jewish and proud of the role that Jews had played in so many historical movements um, throughout history. And, um, you know, it seemed like an incredible story that this people that had been driven out of the Holy Land, out of Jerusalem, you know, 2,000 years ago, had come back 2,000 years later and reclaimed it as a Jewish country. <clears throat> but um, one, of my, one of my interests always has been speaking to, quote, the other, because, you know, that's how we learn, right? So as a man, for example, I was always drawn immediately to the women's movement, just said, that makes perfect sense. Or as a person that, you know, is either white or passes for white or whatever, I was always drawn to struggles of communities of color and, and the absolute legitimacy of demands for equality. Um, and so this one Palestinian friend of mine, um, I had a lot of Palestinian friends, even though I was still holding on to my Zionism. And Zionism, again, is, of course, um, the belief that Israel needs to be a Jewish country, and it should be, and God ordained it. And we really, if we're Zionists, we're just carrying out or implementing that, that plan, which is critically important in the world today because of a history of a thousand years or more of anti-Semitism and Jewish suffering. So I was, I was on the one hand struggling with holding on to that belief, which seemed like it was almost in my bones, right? But also this notion that um, people's liberation is really what's important and liberation movements. And I started to see the Palestinian struggle as a liberation movement. So anyway, with this confusion, I talked to a Palestinian friend. And I said, what do I do? And he said, you know what? I'm not going to tell you the answer, but I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to challenge you to read and read like crazy and read everything you can get your hands on. And I'm also going to challenge you to not just accept this dual narrative that you're living with. Of, well, the Palestinians have a good issue and a good cause and a good argument. And the Jews also have a good issue and a good cause and a good argument. He said, that's not good enough. You're capable of delving deeper and figuring out for you 
where you stand on this really critical issue of our day. And, you know, as he spoke, I could feel my heart just pounding in my chest. And I knew that what he was saying was a journey that I needed to go on. And so that's been really, uh, let me stop here for a minute. You asked some questions, but that's been, if not the journey of my life, certainly one of the most important ones that I've been on. And that is finding my place as a Jewish person in the struggle for justice in Palestine. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm wondering where in this journey had, did yoga come into your your life and how does your yoga practice and the way that you share and teach yoga intertwine with this freedom movement for Palestine? Yeah, thank you. Well, I think they're, for me personally, very intertwined in that you know, I love the concept in yoga that there are warrior positions and one takes very strong stands when one is doing a warrior pose. And then there's also shavasana, right? And there's, you know, there's a time to rest and there's a time to incorporate deeply, you know, into the essence of our being, what we've learned from being a warrior through that experience. And I had the opportunity a couple of times to teach yoga in Gaza and, um, you know, which is where all the carnage is happening right now. So some of the people that have passed away are people that I actually met when I was teaching yoga in Gaza. And I was scheduled to go back right now um, and teach a yoga teacher training program in Gaza so that, you know, yoga could be in Gaza in refugee camps and all over the Gaza Strip. But of course, because of what's happening right now, I'm I'm here and not there. Although a part of me is there spiritually. But, um, you know, what we're talking about here are two of the passions of my life. Yoga, um, for me, has really meant a whole lot. Um, and it's, it's the way I ground every day. And it's the way that I, um, you know, feel good in my body and my spirit and my mind on a daily basis. I had an experience, a personal experience uh, about six years ago where I had a, a seizure where all of a sudden my brain just froze. And I, who had always been very healthy and had done yoga for years and, um, you know, was an athlete as a kid, it, it was shocking that all of a sudden it was like my brain just didn't work. And I was admitted to the hospital and spent a few days there. And, and in fact, there was um, in certain areas of my brain, some damage that was done. And I had to relearn a bunch of things. I had to relearn certain words. And, um, and, and it was a very disorienting time. But getting on my yoga mat was the one place in the world, really, where I felt at home. And I felt comfortable. And I felt centered, connected, and grounded. And so, I, you know, at a very visceral level, I understand the power of yoga, and I want to share that with people. And then the other passion of mine is, <clears throat> as a Jewish person, how do I make sense of and integrate my life into the struggle for justice uh, for people that are living in, you know, what's now called Israel and Palestine, um, and seeing the Palestinian struggle as my own, uh, that as a Jewish person, 
when I embrace the Palestinian struggle for justice, I feel that it's the most Jewish thing I can do. Because one of the greatest teachings in Judaism, um, and, and every tradition has a teaching similar, but in Judaism, there's a teaching that says, justice, justice, thou shalt pursue. It doesn't say justice one time. It says it twice to emphasize the importance of it. It doesn't say thou should pursue it. It says thou shall. It's a command, right? So um, for me to combine in my time in Gaza, yoga, teaching yoga, with being part of the struggle for justice in Palestine, where I came back and I, you know, wrote chapters and books and I spoke a lot to, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people about the experience. It just integrated everything that I firmly believe in. And for me, you know, it's so, it's so interesting. I hear so often Jewish people especially say, wow, I just, I have faced um, so many people saying you're an anti-Semite if you speak the way I speak. And, and, you know, I have heard that from time to time, but it's just, it's almost irrelevant to me. It's, it's minuscule compared to the feeling I have of standing on principle and doing what I believe is right and being a warrior for justice. Mm, beautiful. When you were speaking about before, you know, in the 60s and being attracted to mo movements of liberation and then how you talk about your your yoga practice and how much it means to you, there is such a similarity there in, in the in the attraction to going towards liberation. And it's like, if we're attracted to, to freedom, it's not, we can't be selective in the freedom. It's either we're attracted to freedom or we're not. And I hear that so clearly in the way that you express. And also when you were speaking too about your own experience of reconciling your upbringing with your principles and your beliefs, it does sound like there is an inner transformation that's possible when we do the deep spiritual work of, like you said, the time to for Shavasana to rest and contemplate and integrate and take action. Like, and, and that from what I'm hearing you say has been such a big part of your life. Like it means you're in the world standing strong and you're taking that time to contemplate the deeper aspects, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, all these struggles for justice or for liberation are long-term struggles. They're not going to happen tomorrow, right? And they likely won't happen in our lifetimes. The question is not, did I bring about world justice and peace in my lifetime? The question is, did I make my contribution to that? And because we're all part of a long chain that, you know, was here before we arrived and we'll be here after we arrive. And, and hopefully we touch people along the way and, and inspire people to do their part and their little link in the chain. And, and that's what's critically important. And, you know, that's what I feel all the time when, you know, I've been doing this work for a while and I, from time to time, hear people say, well, don't you just get discouraged? Like, it's so depressing. And I say, yeah, it is depressing. But I don't get discouraged because, you know, I know enough about politics and history to know that all of these struggles, 
Look at the struggle for equality among people of color, black people, especially in this country, or indigenous people in this country. It's been going on for generations and generations, and, and it's nowhere near a resolution. The question is, what are we doing vis-a-vis -vis those issues? Are we part of somehow making it better, somehow helping to be an agent of change or resolution of injustice? Or are we just standing by and saying, you know what, this cause is hopeless, so I'm just going to go drink some beers, you know? <laughs> I think it's important to just remember that, you know, the, the quote that we often hear, none of us is free until all of us are free. And, you know, that's that's a cry that is heard a lot these days um, among Jewish supporters of justice in Palestine, that none of us is free until all of us are free. And, you know, creating a Jewish state, i.e. Israel, where Palestinian people are oppressed had been have been ethnically cleansed that doesn't bring about freedom and it doesn't you know ultimately what that brings about is resentment and anger and a desire for revenge understandably for me it's coming full circle you know my beliefs growing up as a child in the Judaism that I knew were really all about justice you know uh, one of my favorite things to do as a young person was I became very friendly with the rabbi and I would walk home from the synagogue with the rabbi every Sabbath and have lunch with him. And he would teach me about Torah. And I didn't, you know, I, I just loved those moments. And it was part of who I was and still am. And I felt that for a while, you know, earlier in this journey, when I became an advocate for Palestinian rights, I was throwing away the you know, the stuff that was so important. But what I've realized is that I'm just reclaiming them for myself, for myself, and that my values haven't changed a bit, and that I feel more confident today in terms of the importance of standing for justice in my positions than, than I ever did. And so that's another reason why I don't burn out, because how can one burn out if you feel connected to a journey that is meaningful, that hopefully contributes in some way to justice and peace, and that also connects with your heart's aspirations and hopes. Hmm. Well, I definitely see you as the embodiment of what you're expressing. And you mentioned about like, that this is the long term. And when I think of long term, especially in what's happening in Palestine, I'm wondering what your thoughts are or opinions that like you were in Gaza back after the war in 2014. And I know again after and the Palestinians have been dealing with this situation of occupation and colonialism for so long and people in the world have known about it. And yet in the last month, because of what's happening currently, it's it's now unavoidable. It's not something people can turn an a, a eye to anymore. And I'm wondering if you can just express like how you see the situation and how you've been a part of it for longer than the last month, basically, where a lot of the people listening, perhaps we've known about the situation, but we haven't actually, like your friend encouraged you to do, read and learn and, and get educated because we haven't wanted to, but now we can't look away. So what's your 
take on that, like in terms of social justice, like we shouldn't let it get to a genocide where 10,000 people are losing their lives in one month to then wake up. So it's like, is there any anger there to the world? Because you felt this already like 10 years ago, you know, and what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, it's it's really important to understand historical context uh, on and every every issue, and especially on this one. The way that in so much media in this country, current events are being uh, portrayed and analyzed, is that it all began on October seventh, when Hamas attacked and killed fourteen hundred Israelis. That was a horrific act. That was a crime against humanity. But that's not where history began. History began 75 years ago when the Zionist movement ethnically cleansed 750,000, the majority of Palestinians living in what became Israel in 1948, were driven off their land at gunpoint. Um, and many were killed. And um, for 75 years now, a system of apartheid and genocide and ethnic cleansing has been what has dominated Israeli politics and the lives of Palestinian people. And again, I am the first to say um, with certainty that killing 1,400 Israelis on October 7th is a war crime. But when you for 75 years oppress people and deny them rights and deny them access. And for almost 17 years now, people in Gaza have been living in the largest open air prison in the world. At some point, people resist and people fight back and people say, no, I can't take this any longer. I'm gonna do something. And again, it's not excusing a war crime, but it's attempting to say, History didn't begin on October 7th. And if we truly want to stop war crimes and, you know, Israel's response to those 1,400 deaths is also a war crime because in international law, there's something called proportionality. So if you kill one of my people, I'm not allowed, according to international law, to go out and kill thousands of your people. You know, that's just not proportional. Um, so Israel's response now of just leveling Gaza and destroying half the homes in Gaza and two thirds, if not more of the people of Gaza are now refugees again, without a place to live, go eat, drink. Um, that is certainly um, not any way that we're going to bring about a just resolution of this conflict. And it's, you know, again, it's not a conflict as much as it's ethnic cleansing. It's one side with all the power and the other with very, very limited means. You know, Palestinians don't have an army. They don't have a government. They don't have a voice. Um, they can't vote, you know, because Israel doesn't allow it. Um, they can't drink. They can't eat because they're sealed in. So again, it's not to excuse horrific acts of violence, but it's to try to understand that they become inevitable. 
you know, it's that expression that you often hear at rallies. Resistance is justified when people are occupied. Um, and it's, it's, it's going to happen. You know, um, we all laud and, you know, glorify and it's appropriate Nelson Mandela and the African National Congress for a peaceful transition from apartheid to a multi-racial democratic society with all of its flaws. But Nelson Mandela and the ANC and were involved directly in violence in the early years. That's why he was in prison for 27 years. Um, you know, as much as we would love to see absolutely peaceful, non-violent transitions of power, that's not necessarily the most realistic view of the world. That's people get fed up and people get abused and hurt and tired. And, and often we're all human. We're not perfect. We're not angels. We're not God. You know, we strike back. It's, it's, yeah. it's tragic that so many people have died. And um, it's, again, very important to look at historical context. Mm -hmm. Can you shed a little bit of light into your experience when you've been in Gaza on the like level of humanity? Like, obviously, also now we're seeing through social media, through the internet, these images, which are heart-wrenching and I know that you've been there and you've perhaps you can speak a little bit about this the shared humanity that you've felt when you've been with the Gazans and you've shared this spiritual practice of yoga which is the sense of oneness and justice and equality and harmony and what it was like for you there and what 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 the what the people that you interacted with there had to say about peace and about equality and about their future in that sense? Well, when I was teaching one class, um, there were Israeli drones that were flying overhead that we could hear. And there was a palpable sense in the room of fear because people knew um, that could mean a bombing, you know, and it's a very uh, disturbing sound, this drone. It just permeates not just your ears but your entire body and there's a vibration that is not pleasant at all so um you know to be teaching yoga in those kind of circumstances you know we often think of yoga as blissful and peaceful and serene and this was everything the opposite of that um, and there were times i taught yoga in um, refugee camps that were just some of the most crowded places in the world. So we'd go into a room that, you know, might be the size of your average um, living room and just your average house or apartment. And there'd be a hundred people wanting to do yoga in that room, right? So there's not room for everyone to have their own individual yoga mat. So, you know, there were just rugs down on the floor and people were literally lying shoulder to shoulder. And, you know, it's a challenge for a yoga teacher. How do you do yoga poses when people are that tightly <laughs> packed together, right? So um, I kind of like the intellectual challenge of that, but it also was, you know, um, very sad to realize that this is a people that has been through so much and is very, very traumatized. And, you know, when those drones were heard, you could feel the trauma in the room. 
And after a yoga class, you know, you know, uh, as well as anybody that, you know, yoga opens people up. And after Shavasana, um, I'd always gather people into a circle of sharing. And wow, the stories that I would hear were just unforgettable. Like there was this one man that shared, well, first I should say who this group was. It was a very interesting group. This is a group of men that, um, had been abusive of their partners. And there was a women's organization that was running this particular place where this yoga was happening. And these women demanded that the men in their lives attend these workshops to deal with their abusive actions. Um, so it, it was pretty fascinating doing, doing yoga there. But one of the men said uh, after Shavasana, you know, sometimes my wife and I, when we think about the world we brought our children into and what they're going to experience, we sometimes wish we hadn't had children. And there was a woman that shared in another class I taught, she said that when the Israeli bombs were heard flying, you know, jets were heard flying overhead and bombs were heard. Um, this was in 2014 during the war that you mentioned uh, or the attack by Israel, the assault that you mentioned. She said that when the bombs were heard um, dropping in their neighborhood, she and her husband called their four children together and they sat around the kitchen table. And she said to them, I want to hear from each of you. And these kids were like between nine and 16 years old. I want to hear from each of you what you would do or what you will do if a bomb hits and you're the only survivor of our family. And she said to me, I needed to have that conversation because as a mother, I needed to know that our kids had some kind of plan, even in the worst of circumstances, that they would have thought about what they're going to do to survive. So that's the trauma um, and the reality of life for so many people. And, you know, I always felt that this is where yoga is needed most. And if people could learn to just somehow or other, in spite of all of that, or because of all of that, and within all of that, find moments of deep relaxation or integration or comfort or peace, that's very, very important. And I always said to people, you know, the stuff that I'm going to share with you around yoga and the practice of yoga and these positions, they're tools and they're tools for you to use how you want to. And if they can bring you a little serenity, a little feeling of uh, rest, um, that's great. If you use them to further your your work, whatever that is, that's great. You know, um, if you use it to further your political activity to help ground you so that you really are working for justice as you do your, you know, that's great. So, you know, I really felt like hopefully these were tools that people, you know, took and used. And, you know, I corresponded with a number of people uh, for a while afterwards, many of whom I haven't heard from now. Um, and that was the response I often got is that, you know, thank you so much for, you know, I did my warrior too, and I just feel so much better. And, 
you know, or I did a triangle pose and I liked how my body felt looser afterwards and I was able to get on with my day and, you know, cook for my kids or whatever. So, yeah, it was, it was for me profoundly moving to uh, be part of people on a journey that is far more difficult and far more heart-wrenching that, than what most of us in, growing up in this country have experienced. So interesting to hear the stories of these people that are coming to a yoga program or interested in moving towards practices which are healing and peace promoting within and the intergenerational trauma that these people have experienced and I guess that's why we're at the critical point we are right now of ceasefire because the wounds of war the healing isn't possible until there we've moved towards a resolution and it's so heartbreaking also to think of these people nine years ago that have you know participated in your yoga program maybe moved towards some kind of sense of inner healing and these kids even and then you know again in 2020 and again now they're experiencing it ongoing and like even just you explaining the fear that could be felt in the room with drones or aircrafts above like to get to the point of true healing which is what we all universally share and that's why I know I'm attracted to yoga and possibly you, that sense of wholeness, that sense of oneness that we get. But to to actually get to that point, the Palestinian people need to have their safety and their basic human rights met in order to then start the deep healing. So it's so beautiful in one way, but it's also so heartbreaking in another way to hear you share in that way. Yeah. I mean, I think that you've summed it up. That's how I feel. And I think that's how everybody feels when they go to a place like Gaza. Uh, it's overwhelming to feel the hospitality and to feel the sweetness and generosity of the culture. And it's overwhelming to feel and experience the the um, the depth of oppression that this group of people has known now for decades. Mm -hmm. I'm also wondering like what your experience has been. Surely I know you actually maybe went to school in Israel a bit or you lived in a kibbutz. Like what your experience has been there with the your Israeli friends or family there that are working towards peace as well, or what your experience has been? Well, it's, um, it's, it's sad in many ways that right now the peace movement in Israel is pretty small. Um, there are some very brave Jewish souls who believe in the kinds of values and ideals that I'm sharing, but many of them have felt totally ostracized, criticized, um, and discriminated against for those political views. And many of them have left. And, you know, one of the, you know, fascinating sort of ironies of history is that many people have left Israel and gone to live in Berlin. And Berlin, which of course was the capital of the Gestapo and the Holocaust, you know, the Nazis, um, is now the fastest growing Jewish community in the world. It's just ironic. 
Um, but what it means is that uh, in Israel right now, among the Jewish population, which is 80% of the country of Israel is Jewish, 20% is Palestinian, there's a whole lot of censorship. Um, you know, the military censors the news in Israel. So most Israelis, unless they truly do research on online, do not get a very accurate picture of what's going on. And therefore, there's widespread support for um, the atrocities that are happening in Gaza right now. There is certainly among the families of the hostages, Israeli hostages that were taken by Hamas and are still in Gaza, there is there are many of those family members that are calling for an immediate ceasefire. Like, why would you be bombing Gaza now when our loved ones are there? And, you know, there are stories that several dozen of those hostages have already been killed in the bombings. But it seems that Israel is so intent on, quote, punishing Hamas and punishing all the Palestinians for having Hamas as their government you know, even though it's a government that is uh, incredibly limited in terms of what it can do because it's an occupied territory. So there's there's a belief among Israeli politicians that are in power that all Palestinians are guilty of the crimes and sins of Hamas and therefore bombing apartment complexes with, you know, 70% of the victims are women and children that somehow that's justified because of this crime that was committed on October 7th of killing 1,400 Israeli innocent people. So th that's the tragedy is that people just don't see a bigger picture and don't have the, the heart, the open-hearted empathy to see that, you know, we're all suffering here. And in reality, Right now, there are about 7 million Jews and about 7 million Palestinians living in historic Palestine. Neither side is going anywhere. Ultimately, these two peoples will have to learn to live together. I mean, there, there's no other way. And, you know, as impossible as that seems right now because of what's happening, because of all the death and destruction in Gaza, you know, I think we have to remember that there were two world wars where the Germans and the French slaughtered each other. Um, and, you know, now you cross from France to Germany or Germany to France, like you cross from Oregon to California. You just drive right across the border. It's not a big deal, right? So, you know, how long will that take until Palestinians and Israelis can actually form some kind of democratic society with equal rights for all might be a generation might be two generations who knows because right now the horror of what's happening is going to last a long time and that's very very sad but ultimately that's the answer that these two peoples will ultimately live together because there is no alternative there's a palestinian professor who teaches international law in this country Nora Erekat is her name, and she recently said, you know, the truth is we will all either live together or die together. Those mm. are the options, unfortunately, or fortunately, if people make the commitment to live together. Mm -hmm. Well, 
It definitely does seem like in one way, the world stage right now, we are so polarized and divided. And yet, there is still such an uprising of folks that are moving towards that, that I feel like for me anyways, it's something to attach hopefulness to that we will live together, the Palestinians and the Israelis and all the other positions in the world that are so extreme at this moment. It's, I think for, for me anyways, and I'm sure for a lot of folks, like when we look towards that, it's really disheartening. And to think like, I loved who, how you talked about, when we look at history, we can see that there's other countries and nations and peoples that have overcome oppression and that have overcome war. And, and there is a way that because it's been done. So that does help in a sense, or like give some reprieve to the, the, this, the heartbreak that one feels when we look towards what's happening right now. You know, we're here, we're talking about the current situation and we're on, you know, this is a yoga podcast as well. And like when you were talking, I started thinking about like, we're obviously deeply spiritual. And when we're going towards a yoga practice, when we want to live in this idealistic way of freedom, which that's what we all want. And yet there's this mix up with religion and politics right now, which is creating this horrible situation. Can you speak just a little bit about Judaism and Israel and Palestinians and Islam? Like, it seems like religion has got mixed up into a political situation. If I'm seeing, can you just clarify that a little bit? Yeah, you know, um, for generations and generations, centuries upon centuries, Jews and Palestinians, Jews and Arabs, Jews and Muslims and Christians live together in the Holy Land, live together in Jerusalem and Palestine and what's now Israel. Um, and, uh, you know, the anti-Semitism that we all know so much about because of the Holocaust that was a European phenomenon. That didn't happen in the. That didn't happen in Palestine. Um, there are stories that you know the older generation of Palestinians will talk will tell about how you know their best friends were Jews um, and that they played together and they ate together and you know there was a. Without sounding too nostalgic there is a history of of spiritual connection deep spiritual connection that existed in the holy land that could and should be inspiring for those of us today that seek an alternative or a different way the problem is not the religion um the problem is because of anti-semitism in europe there was a group of people that developed an ideology called Zionism. And Zionism said that European Christians will never really accept us Jews. Just look at, it's our history. That's There have been pogroms, there have been all kinds of attacks. We're second-class citizens. We're not allowed to be in certain professions. We can't own, th you know, there are all these things that made it clear to certain people that the answer was 
to go back home. And home was from the Bible. Home was Zion or Jerusalem or what became Israel. And there in our homeland is the only place we're going to be free. And the problem with it was, unlike all four of my grandparents that came to this country from Eastern Europe, they didn't come to the U.S. to take it over, to build a Jewish country and discriminate against non-Jews. They came here to be part of the American experience or the American journey or adventure. The difference was the people that went to Palestine by the 1930s, it coalesced into a movement that said, we are going to take over this land. Zionism is going to be a movement for the establishment of the state of Israel, which will be a Jewish state. And, and that's unfortunately the problem. Had Jews gone to Palestine with the same intent they came to America, perhaps none of this horror would have happened, but that wasn't the case. And so again, I think that for me, uh, and this is really challenging for many Jews because we're brought up with this belief, or most of us were, that Zionism was the national liberation movement of the Jewish people. And what we have to do, and this is really soul-wrenching and deep spiritual work, is we have to reframe that and realize that Zionism is a settler colonial movement. It's a movement that says this group of people Settler colonial folks from Europe coming in, this um, is a movement that is going to establish their preeminence. And so we have to somehow de-Zionize. We have to get rid of Zionism. And that doesn't mean in any way getting rid of Jews or anything else. We have to begin to reframe the concept that our liberation is tied up in the liberation of all people. And none of us is free until all of us are free. And that ultimately the only solution in historic Palestine or Israel-Palestine is a democratic society with equal rights for everybody. And a return of the refugees that were driven out in 1948 and then again in 67. And if we can just begin to see that there is a power and a deep soul connection to that concept, which really rings true in all of our hearts at some level. If we dust away or clear away all the baggage that gets in the way of seeing that reality, that what we want is freedom, all of us, spiritual and political, and that the only way to get there is for justice and equality for all peoples. And I, I believe that you know, that's what keeps me going. And that's ultimately what will happen again, probably not in my lifetime, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's the journey to be on. Mm, wow. Such profound idealism that I resonate also so deeply with. So it's really moving to hear you speak about freedom in that way, because you're right. That's what we all fundamentally desire is to be free. And even when you were speaking about the reframe for the Jewish people of recognizing settler colonialism, it's not just the Jewish community that 
has to reframe that. I know for myself, even looking at my place in as a ancestor of settler colonialists in Canada, like it's such a big work in the terms of the collective that we all have to do individually to look at the positions that we're in, the positions of privilege, the place of history, and use that information to work towards that collective freedom. And, and like, I sometimes feel like it's too much of an idea, like it's not even possible. But then like speaking to someone like you, Ned, I find it so inspiring because it's like so many drops in the bucket, like the bucket eventually, maybe not in your lifetime, maybe not even in my lifetime, but it will, as long as we're all marching together, I feel like change is inevitable. Yeah, I think you're so right. You know, there's that expression that we often hear in, you know, yoga classes that the pose begins when you're ready to get out of it. And I think that um, that's true, not just of yoga, obviously, it's true of spirituality and it's true of political work. And um, so at the moment where we're most despairing of justice ever happening in the Middle East, that's when the pose truly begins. That's when the work you know, that's when it's time to roll up our sleeves and figure out our place in the struggle. Mm-hmm. That's the pose. Mm-hmm. It definitely is like a yoga in action right now that we can't just have the ideal of freedom, just like the yogi can't just desire freedom. We actually have to take action for the freedom. And I think it's a good place for us to segue the conversation into you know, people that are listening to this podcast are attracted to yoga, like I said before, because there is an attraction to that sense of oneness, that sense of equality. So, but also there's this kind of, you know, and I guess yoga in the West is a different kind of entity in and itself, which is a whole nother topic, but that there can be a tendency to shy away from action, from resistance, like you were talking before about, um, you know, fighting is necessary at the beginning. So for us as yoga practitioners, for advocates of peace within our own lives and our own communities, how can we take action for peace and freedom for Palestinians and like for all oppressed people? That's the journey of our lives, right? It's how do we figure out our role, what's our contribution? And, you know, everyone has a contribution to make and we think it's insignificant, but, you know, it was Robert Kennedy who said um, something to the effect of, you know, even the best of our efforts can be viewed as just a single drop, but all those single drops could create an ocean, you know, and a current that can sweep down, you know, the worst of, evils that you know afflict humanity and and that's i think that's you know where we have to somehow find meaning is what's our drop uh and each of us has a drop to give or many drops to give you know for me that combination that you're talking about of of spirituality and yoga and political action is it's very reinforcing that I can't do one without the other. I was never one of those people that could just go off to a yoga retreat and say, I'm going to never 
read a paper again or listen to the news or I just want to be in harmony with nature and live a good life. You know, to me, that never made any sense. To me, that wasn't yoga. It's not yoga. Yoga, again, I believe is to be a warrior for justice and for peace and integrity and integration. So, I, you know, I think everybody needs to find their own truth. I mean, I can, you know, give you websites and things like that that are, you know, excellent for information on this issue that can be incredibly helpful. But I think that we all start from where we're at. You know, the, the longest journey begins with that single step. And each of us in our hearts knows what our step is. And maybe it's talking with our parents or siblings or a friend about, you know, why did you say that? Or why do you take that position? Or have you thought about this? Or, you know, it's how do we reframe conversations and realize that every conversation is incredibly important because that person that you touch, they touch hundreds or thousands or even more and you might have an influence in how they're touching those people. So, you know, it all sounds like a drop in the bucket, but each drop is so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is good to remember. And I just love the image of the warrior in yoga. Like it's just every, if we are working as yoga practitioners for the middle path, for the harmony, like, we can't just sit idly. We are not. We're not the yogi in the cave. We are like the karm yogis taking action. And and I appreciate what you're saying that we all have our own individual purpose. And it's that's where the individual work comes in for us to look at it within ourselves and take those moments of rest and quiet to really see where can I make a difference or where can I make a change in my community and it, in the sense for the Palestinian people as well. like, And it's just about, I guess, also attracting the right community. And I think that's also something that's so inspiring right now about what's going on is to see the gathering of people, like you were explaining before we even started recording about, you could share that story, maybe that coming together of how there's community opportunities possible where we might get attracted or meet somebody that can help us feel more involved and help us take action. And yeah, I think maybe the story you're referring to is um, there was a wonderful action a couple of days ago here in Portland where about 200 Jews shut down a building where uh, our congressional representative has his office um, and it was, you know, Jews uh, doing that to stop business as usual and demand that the senator, the uh, congressperson, take a strong position for justice and peace and an immediate ceasefire because hundreds of people every day are getting killed. And uh, so the only moral position at this point really is a ceasefire. Um, and what was interesting to me in so many on so many levels, but certainly on uh, a very deep personal one, was a number of Palestinians came by, and when they found out what was happening, that this was Jewish people willing to get arrested um, for the cause of stopping the killing of Palestinian people, they started to weep and just try to share through tears how much this meant to them. And, and that's the human connection. And that's, again, where I would emphasize that this is not a battle between Jews and Palestinians. 
It's a battle between those who want to dominate and those who want to be free. And it's th those are very different worlds and you know concepts of how the world operates. And yogis understand um, that because that's the struggle of you know being a yoga practitioner. How do we move more into the direction of that world of honoring the beauty and the validity and the integrity of every individual on this planet who's here for a purpose and every life is important. And as we, you know, whether we're doing a warrior pose or um, any other pose in yoga, somehow we're connecting to our own power, you know, and the power therefore of others uh, because we radiate a power and we can ignite passion and power in other people. And that's the power of taking our yoga off the yoga mat um, out into the world. Mm, beautiful. Thank you. And just a few more questions here. I'm just really appreciating your time. So thank you. I'm wondering how you see yoga being a part of the way forward. I think the beauty of yoga is that it can help people from burning out. This is hard work. You know, we're up against, um, we're up against the military industrial complex. We're up against governments that are entrenched. We're up against career politicians that don't want to, you know, risk losing their next election. We're up against all kinds of stuff that keeps the status quo in place. And, it can be burnout city. It can, you can burn out real quick um, when you're just banging on doors and getting no response. Or so I think that's where, you know, the yoga mind comes into place. And, you know, unless we're taking care of ourselves. And I don't mean that in any kind of selfish or uh indulgent way. I'm not talking about, you know, expensive vacations and things. I'm I'm talking about taking care of our hearts and our minds and our souls and our bodies so that we can be on the front lines um, as a yogic warrior battling for peace. Uh, so for me, that's the contribution. And it also, I think, um, reminds us that this is not about winning, you know, in the sense of winning over somebody or winning, you know, at the expense of somebody. It's about winning you know, it's that line that um, an indigenous woman said many years ago, if you've come to help me, you're wasting your time. If you come to walk, it brings tears to my eyes. If you've come to walk with me um, and know that your liberation is bound up in mine, let's get to work. Mm. I also find that very moving. Because that is what unites us all, is that desire for freedom. And if you're not free, then I'm not free. Mm, thank you for sharing that. Just to wrap up, I always ask the guests at the end of the show to leave us with a point that we can question or contemplate for ourselves within our own contemplative practice inside and hopefully in this context lead to great action externally as well well 
I'm not sure that I have any profound wisdom on that, but I think that one thing that I often think about is, you know, when a young person asks, you know, where were you when such and such happened or what did you do about such and such? It's, you know, I think it's really important to be able to say proudly, I was part of, you know, a great movement for social justice or political justice. And so I guess that's my parting thought is thinking about our legacy and what is it that we are leaving um, and that we are far more important and influential in the best sense of those terms than we often give ourselves or that we often acknowledge. And so when, you know, a grandchild someday says to you, what did you do about that issue? How do we want to be able to respond with, with pride or with shame that, you know, we chose the easy way out? We didn't do anything. So, uh, you know, I, I think that is a perspective that for me um, gives me juice. It gives me energy because I do want to be able to say someday that I was part of the important struggles that made a difference in our world. Mm -hmm. Gives me juice also. And I love the vision, the image as well that you said of the, the yogic warrior, the battle for peace. And I think that's the message I'm going to take from this conversation. So thank you so much, Ned. I really, really appreciate your time and your brilliance and your just radiant heart that I can see is so open and just united not only with the Palestinian people, but with, I'm sure, people right there in your close community. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure and I wish you peace and much, much joy. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please leave a review. It really helps the show reach more people. If you'd like to have your greatest spiritual questions answered on the show, send them to me through social or email. And don't forget to follow on your favorite streaming platforms. Let's stay curious, connected, and keep walking the path together. Music graciously offered by Heidi Herdaya Groschler. In oneness and delight, this is Bobby signing off until next time. <laughs>